Take our Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Luke chapter 1. And let's look to the Lord in prayer. Precious Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege we have as believers and uh, the opportunity we have together to join in this place before your throne, before your word, and be able to come and worship you, to be able to come and study your word together. We thank you, Father God, for the privilege of having in our possession your word. And we pray that, Father, today as we open up uh, the pages of this, your word, and we look into Luke chapter 1, that, Lord, you would give us insight and understanding into the truths here contained. May we receive from you, Father God, that which you would have for us today. May we be blessed by your word. May you be exalted, Father God. Lord, allow me to be used of you today. Lord, I do pray that you would just empower me, Father, with your spirit. Allow me to speak only that which you would have me to speak. And Lord God, just challenge us through your word today. Meet us where we're at. And may we be able to give to you all the praise and all the glory as we leave this place this morning. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we noted last time when we were in Luke chapter 1, the events of Luke chapter 1 unfold in the life of Israel when Israel is in darkness and unbelief. They've not heard a word from the Lord through a prophet for some 400 years known as the 400 silent years from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the book of Matthew. With the coming of the angel of the Lord, the Lord is about to invade the silence with the announcement of the birth of two young men, one who is the unique and totally divine son of God, the other his forerunner. And what unfolds with the angelic announcement is the greatest love story that was ever known. As one commentator noted, what few people today seem to realize is that the Christmas story properly begins with an older Jewish priest and his equally aged wife. We introduce to this couple, these two people in verse 1, uh, verse 5, sorry, of the chapter 1, where it says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the doors of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we find these two aged saints, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we know that the Bible names are important, and that's certainly true of these two people. Zacharias means God remembers. And we are about to see that indeed God did remember, even though Zacharias might feel that God had forgotten him. God remembers Zacharias, and remembers his people. Elizabeth means God is my oath. And God is indeed about to make an oath, make a promise that is going to bring great lights that will dispel both darkness for Zacharias and Elizabeth and for the nation of Israel, indeed for each and every one of us. Now God takes control of mankind's existence and intervenes in their lives, calling on Zacharias and Elizabeth to play a part in the unfolding plan of redemption. 
said last time, I believe there are four facts involved in the call of these two. That when you and, proper, you and I properly understand them will lead us to a proper response to the call of God in our lives. You saw last time the first of these facts, these four facts. We noted that when God works, when God intervenes in our lives, call us to use us, he chooses the time. We say that God is never early, God is never late, but God is always on time when it comes to his will. And now today, note with me the second fact involved in when God intervenes in the lives of mankind. And that is he chooses the people. Not only does he choose the time, but he chooses the people. And that's certainly true here in Luke chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. When you look at the lives of Zacharias and Elizabeth, what you find are two ordinary, obscure and unlikely candidates for what God wanted them to do. I mean, God could have chosen anyone to be the parents of John the Baptist. He could have chosen someone rich. He could have chosen someone famous. One commentator said he could have chosen a Herod or some other great Jew. But he chose these commonplace people for an uncommon task. So the question that came to my mind, at least, was why this couple? Why Zacharias and Elizabeth? Why not somebody else? What was it that made them ideal candidates for God to use? Well, the answer revealed for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And here, first, we see their salvation. Look in verse 6, if you would. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They were both righteous before God. The word righteous has to do with being right before God or having a right relationship with God. And the only way for you and I to have a right relationship with God is first and foremost for you and I to be saved. For you and I by faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted Him as our Savior, to acknowledge ourselves as sinners before a holy God in need of salvation and that we've cried out to God for him to save us from our sins. That's the only way to have a right relationship with God. And they were righteous because they understood that they were sinners before a holy God. They understood that they needed to be saved. They understood that God was their Savior and they by faith believed in him. And now God could say of them they were both Righteous. Because the only way for us to be righteous is by faith in Jesus Christ. By grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's word clear, is clear that you and I are sinners before a holy God. That's the state in which we find ourselves before Jesus Christ intervenes. In order for you and I to stand righteously before God, in order for you and I to be declared righteous before a holy God, then you and I have to have our sins forgiven. You and I need to be saved by grace through faith. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were both saved. They'd both been declared righteous. They were both righteous before God. They were not righteous because of their works. 
They were not righteous because he was a priest and she was the daughter of a priest, that her lineage went back to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. It's not because of their birth. It's not because of their position. It's not because of their function that they are declared, stated to be righteous before a holy God. It's because of their relationship with God is declared righteous because they are saved. They've been forgiven of their sins. They've placed their faith and trust in God. The commentator Gill put it this way, they were both righteous before God, not as the Pharisees, only righteous before men, but the sight of God who sees the heart and whose judgment is according to truth, and therefore were not justified by the deeds of the law, for by them no man can be justified in the sight of God, but were made righteous through the righteousness of Christ, by which the saints were made righteous before the coming of Christ. God beheld them in his Son and clothed with that righteousness. Now Christ hasn't yet died here in Luke chapter 1. He hasn't yet purchased our redemption upon the cross of Calvary. But the Old Testament saints were saved in Christ just as you and I are saved in Christ. They were saved in Christ in the prospect of what he was to do. God had promised the Old Testament there was a Savior coming who would die upon the cross of Calvary, would shed his blood and purchase our redemption. And they believed in God and their faith was in him and their sacrifice that God was going to make on their behalf. And they were saved, just like you and I are saved, through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were ideal candidates for God to use because they were both righteous before God. They were truly saved. And before we can hope to please God, then you and I need to be saved. Before we can be used of God, we must first be saved, justified, declared righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question that I'd like to ask this morning is, are you saved? Do you know, like Elizabeth and Zacharias knew, do you know that Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and by faith you believed in him and you've been gloriously saved? God's word says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ today? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're saved? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that if you die today that you would go to heaven and spend eternity with the Lord. Do you know that for certainty? Have you been declared righteous by grace through faith? If not, may I ask you to let us take God's word and show from God's word how you can know for sure, like Elizabeth and Zacharias, that you are indeed saved. You're declared righteous. You're justified. You have your sins forgiven. And you're on your way to heaven. Are you saved today? The second thing that made them ideal candidates for God to use was their sanctification. He goes on in verse 6, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. It says of Zacharias and Elizabeth that they were walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of God. This tells us that these two people lived a life that brought the approval of God upon them. Not only were they righteous before God because they had believed in Him by faith, as God looked at their lives, God's approval was upon them. They were walking in His commandments and His ordinances. And because they were obedient to God and His commandments, 
God commended them. They set themselves apart to do the will of God. They not only believed in God, but they lived their faith before others. You know, obedience in God's commands and ordinances was not so much about their righteousness before God, but about the evidence of that righteousness before men. They'd been declared righteous before God. That's why they found themselves before God righteous. But the evidence of that relationship, the evidence of their righteousness, the evidence of the fact that they were saved was seen by everybody by their walk. They were living in accordance with the will of God. Matthew Henry said this, their being righteous before God was evidence by the course and tenor of their conversations. They showed it not by their talk, but by their works, by the way they walked in and the rule they walked by. They showed their faith by their works. Isn't that what James says? Show me your faith without works, and I show you my faith by my works. And that was true of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They demonstrated their faith to everyone around about them by their works, by walking in the commandments and the ordinances of God. The phrase walking in there simply means keeping the commandments. They were keeping the commandments and the ordinances of God. In other words, they obeyed God's commands. The word commandments here speaks of their moral duty before God and man. The word ordinances speaks of the religious rites and customs which God had ordained or appointed in that day and age. And this refers to all the religious duties which the law of God commands. They were living morally before the world. And they were living ceremonially as a good Jewish couple before the world. Now, many of those ordinances that Zacharias and Elizabeth were commanded by the Old Testament law to maintain and now have been abolished. But in that day, they were still in force. And the idea of this verse is when it talks about walking the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, the idea here is not that they just knew the commandments of God, not just knew the ordinance of God, but that they understood them. So much so that they obeyed them from the heart. The idea is that they weren't just going through the motions, they weren't just going through the rituals of religion. But what they were doing as they lived their life in obedience to God's commands and ordinances day by day, they were living it from the heart. This is what they believed God wanted them to do. They had such a relation with God, such a love for their God, that they were living out their faith day by day. Those are the, ordinances, the commandments of the ordinance of God underpin their very life. If you were to meet Zacharias and Elizabeth, you would have found a very godly couple. A couple who from the heart were living morally before the community. A couple from the heart were living according to God's ordinances. And if you got to talk with them and got to know them, you would know that this was not just ritual to them. They were not just going through the motions. They didn't just know the facts. 
They believed in God and because they believed in him, they'd been declared righteous and they were living that righteousness out before their world. They lived in accordance with God's revealed will in his word. And then it says at the end of the verse of them that they were walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They were therefore blameless. Because they were walking in the ordinance, the commandments of the Lord, they were therefore blameless. And the word blameless means without reproach. The idea is that if you saw this couple, they would have a powerful testimony. The word blameless is not implying perfection. It's not implying sinlessness because nobody's sinless. That's not possible for us to be sinless. We still have the flesh. We still struggle with the flesh. There's still a war going on in you and I as believers between the flesh and the spirit. We do have that battle day by day. And 1 John makes it clear that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. We do sin. So blameless is not about perfection. It's not about sinlessness. The word blameless has the idea of no fault or deficiency could be found in them. Nobody could point an accusing finger at Zacharias and Elizabeth and say something bad about them. Because even when they did that which was wrong, they confessed it, they dealt with it, and they moved on for the Lord. There was nothing, there was nothing reproachable about their behavior. They said they were saved, and they acted like it. No one could point an accusing finger at Zacharias and Elizabeth and say, what a bunch of hypocrites they are. They say they've been declared righteous before God, but look at what they do. Look at how they live morally. Look at how they live according to the ordinances. They don't live according to God's commands. They're hypocrites. Nobody could point a finger at Zacharias and Elizabeth and accuse them. They were not doing anything that was reproachable. They were living godly before their world. You know, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 challenges us the same way. It says that you may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom he shines lights in the world. God wants for you and I as believers, those of us who have been declared righteous, he wants you and I to live righteously. He wants you and I to live blamelessly, to live lives that are above reproach. Our testimony ought to be such that no one can point an accusing finger at us and accuse us of hypocrisy. Spurgeon said this about this word blameless. He said the Greek word might be translated hornless. As if you were to be creatures not only to do no harm, but could not do any. Like sheep that not only will not devour, but cannot devour, for it were contrary to their nature. For they have no teeth with which to bite, no fangs with which to sting, no poison with which to slay. He says we're to be hornless. We're to be like sheep who do not have the capacity to devour, do not have the capacity to uh, maul, do not have the capacity, do not have the fangs. In other words, that you and I are people who are living lives as much as is possible in the Lord Jesus Christ that nobody can point an accusing finger at and say they really aren't living the way that they say they believe. 
You know, God's word tells us that God has sent us forth as sheep in the midst of wolves in Matthew 10, 16. And he wants us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He wants you and I to have a testimony before the lost, before the world, that as they look at us, they see that you and I are living our relationship with God out before them, that we're living that righteousness before them day by day, that we are blameless with regard to the word of God before our world. He wants us to show ourselves to be true followers of God through our obedience day by day. You know, we had to live daily in obedience to God's revealed will to us in his word. If you and I are going to be blameless, if you and I are going to have a living testimony before others, so there's nothing that they can accuse us of, then you and I need to make sure there's nothing in our lives that hinder that testimony. That as people look at us, they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. That what they see in us is somebody like Zacharias Elizabeth who is living a godly life before them. That they see that we're different. That they see that we are living to the best of our ability and the power of God to bring glory to God. That they can say of us, there's something different about them. They may even think there's something strange and weird about them. that they see a testimony that we are God's children. And God chose Zacharias and Elizabeth not only because they were saved, but because they were living in obedience to God's revealed will in his word. And if we desire to be used of the Lord, it's not enough just to be saved. And we must be striving to live in obedience to God's revealed will in his word. The third thing that made them ideal candidates for God to use was not only that they were saved and sanctified, but they had faithful service. Their faithful service. Look in verse 7 to 9. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn the incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Let's read in verse 11. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without, at the time of incense, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. You know, Zacharias and Elizabeth, as we've read, were both righteous before God. And they were walking in the, all the commandments and the ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But there was a problem. And that's spelled out for us here. This couple didn't have any children. They had no child. Now, to you and I today, we think, well, that's not a big thing. Why did God even bother putting that in this text? Well, partly it's because of the miracle that's about to follow. But it's partly true because, you see, that condition of being unable to have children in that day and age, the time of, the, this, of Luke chapter 1 being written in the, in the Middle East, that condition was a reproachable condition for Jews. To be childless in those days was looked down upon. 
It was something terrible. It was something awful. In fact, it was so much so that people would look down upon you and they would say, God must surely be punishing you. Because children were seen, and indeed are, a blessing from God. And by extrapolation, they come to the wrong conclusion that if therefore you don't have children, you are not blessed of God. Now, you and I know that's not true. Just because a couple doesn't have children doesn't mean that God's blessing doesn't rest upon them. But in Israel in this day and age, as Elizabeth and Zacharias are serving the Lord, to not have children, particularly to be these ones who have been declared righteous, who are living according to the commandments of the ordinance of God, there was suspicion around that something's not right. They don't have any children. Now, Dr. Luke notes for us that the reason why they had no children was because of Elizabeth's barrenness. He says, and they had no children because that Elizabeth was barren. And he further explains the problem was aggravated by the fact that they were both well advanced in years. He says that they were, she was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. And so what we find here is that for Zacharias and Elizabeth, the possibility that they would ever be parents had grown remote. In fact, it seems like it's grown beyond remote. There is no possibility of them having children. And it appears from what we read here in Luke chapter 1 that they had accepted that no child would ever grace their home. That they would never be parents. This could have easily led to them to be bitter with God. It could have easily led to them to give up on God. I mean, they, to all intents and purposes, it seemed like God had forsaken them. And they could have quite easily packed up their bags and moved on and said it's not worth serving God. If the one blessing that we've been praying for, we know they had been praying for it because the rest of the passage tells us that, the one blessing they've been praying for, the thing they wanted the most, a child, had not come to pass, then what's the point of serving God? The reality is they could have cursed God. They could have accused God. They've got to say that God is unloving and uncaring and what's the point of carrying on? What's the point of sacrificing your life to serve God day in, day out when God can't even meet this basic need? But that's not what they did. In fact, there's another evidence that this couple were indeed blameless before God and before man. It's not what they did. They chose rather to live their lives in full devotion to God. They were walking in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And we see this further illustrated for us in verse 8, where we read this, And it came to pass that while he, that Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, we find that Zacharias went about his daily work, and executed his priest's office before God. He got up every morning and did what he was to do as a priest, day in, day out, faithfully, 
before the Lord. Not everything was going their way. But that did not stop Zacharias from being faithful. He may not have understood why God had not blessed them with a child, but he remained faithful. He may not have liked the criticism the people gave him, accusing him that there must be something wrong because you've not had a child, but he remained faithful. Nothing moved him from serving the Lord, from executing his office before God. He kept serving faithfully. The word executed here means he faithfully fulfilled his function. He faithfully fulfilled his duty as priest. Here's his heart again. Here's this man who is from the heart obeying the commandments, the orders of the Lord, therefore living a blameless life before all people, and he's going about his priestly business day in, day out, executing it from a heart of love for God despite his circumstance. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told that Zacharias was a priest of the course of Abiah. Look in verse 5 again. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. He was of the course of Abiah. Which kind of tells us a little bit what's going on here in verse 8, where it says that he executed the priest's office before God in, in order of his course. So he's of the course of a buyer. This refers to a time when the priests in Israel became so numerous that all the priests could not minister at the altar at all the same time. There were so many priests in Israel at one time that they could not all operate at the tabernacle and the temple at the same time. They couldn't all worship, they couldn't all minister around the altar every day. There was too many of them. And so we read in 1 Chronicles 24 that David divided them into 24 classes or 24 courses. The class of the course of a buyer was the eighth in order. So during the year, they would go through the course and the eighth course, the eighth group to minister at the altar was a buyer. 1 Chronicles 24.10 says the seventh was Haggaz, and the eighth, Abijah. Now, the Greek word Abijah and the Hebrew word Abijah is the same word, okay? So he, he was of the course of Abijah. He was of this eighth group, eighth group, eighth group of people, eighth group of priests who were going to minister before the altar. And in 2 Chronicles 8.14, we read that Solomon appointed according to the order of David, his father, the courses of the priests to their service. Now, this word course means class or order, or to put it in a language that you and I might comprehend, it meant shift. Okay, this was shift work. All right, there was, there was all these shifts. There was 12 shifts, 24 for the year, and they would go through a shift, okay? And these were the eighth. This was the eighth. This was their turn. And with this division of priests, it meant that twice a year, each division of or class of priests, was on duty, took their shift at the temple twice a year. Each shift of service was for one week, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Now, in order to determine which ministries each priest in the course would perform, 
the priests on duty drew lots. That's verse 9. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn the incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So each group of, of priests who came to minister before the, the altar, they would cast lots to see whose job, which job each of them then would do in the task for that seven days before the temple, tem, temple before the altar. Luke 1.9 tells that Zacharias was of the eighth order, a buyer, and his lot, when the lot fell, was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now this was a great day, therefore in the life of Zacharias, because he had been chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place. Now that's a privileged position. In fact, this was such a high honour that it was permitted only once in a lifetime of a priest. Some priests never got to do it. But if you did it, you never did it again. You got to do this once in a lifetime. This was a privileged position for Zacharias to find himself in. And the incense was offered daily before the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice about three o'clock in the afternoon. The ceremony for the offering of the incense went like this. Three priests took part in the ceremony. They began by removing the ashes from the previous service. Next they would bring in and place on the golden altar the pan filled with the hot burning coals taken from the altar of burnt offerings. They would then sprinkle the incense on the hot coals. And then while the smoke was created, which was created, ascended up to heaven, they made intercession for the people. And this was the most distinguished part of the service. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3 describes the scene for us, although this is in heaven, but the scene's the same. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And so Zacharias gets the privilege of taking the incense and offering on the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies. He's in the holy place, offering up the, the incense on the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies. And the incense was kept burning perpetually in front of the veil. They divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And while this ceremony is going on inside the holy place, at the temple, the people would gather outside in the court in front of the temple. That's verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. The men were in the men's court. The women were in their courts praying. But they could see the altar from both the courts, the men's court and the female court. They could see the altar. They could see the smoke rising from the altar of incense as the priest was making prayer for the people. The people were making prayer for themselves before God. It was Zacharias' time to fulfill this duty of burning incense before the Holy of Holies for the lot had fallen on him. No chance in this, was there? This is divine intervention. We said last time God chooses the time. Well, this is God's choice of time. God's intervening in the life of Zacharias 
He has been going for year after year after year after year and serving the Lord at the temple. And every time the eighth course came up and it was his group of priests to serve, the lot was cast, but he never had this privilege before. But this time, because it's God's time, Zacharias gets to go up to the temple, into the holy place, and offer up the incense upon the altar. And the three priests took it in turns. As we're going to see, when he's in there, something special is going to happen because an angel is going to appear to him, and that's what we're going to see next time. But here we see God's timing in the calling of Zacharias. God calls him and allows the lot to fall upon him. And he's called by God, God during one of the two times that he was on duty in the temple. You also note that God called Zacharias when he was faithfully performing his priestly duties. One commentator said, God often calls his servants while they are busy doing their daily tasks. Both Moses and David were called when caring for sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat. Peter and his partners were mending their nets when Jesus called them. And here is a principle for us to follow. If we want God to use us, then we need to be busy seeking to obey God's revealed will for our lives. Somebody said, God won't usually call us while we're sitting in the grandstand. He usually calls us while we are faithfully running the race. Another commentator said, it is difficult to steer a car when the engine is not running. He says, when you and I are busy serving the Lord, when you and I are busy living for him, when you and I are walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, the Lord blameless, when you and I are walking a living testimony day in, day out, it is then that God can use us. It's then that God can call us aside for a special task because we've already proved ourselves to be faithful. And when God trusts us with little and we're found faithful in the little, he will then also trust us with much because he knows he can trust us to be faithful in much. Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous, obedient and blameless. They were saved sanctified and serving God. They were dedicated to serving the Lord and they've left us an example to follow. I trust today you know the Saviour. I trust there's been a time and place in your life where you acknowledge yourself as a sinner before a holy God and you've cried out to him for salvation and he has saved you as he promised. And you now have been declared righteous, just like Zacharias and Elizabeth. You stand in his righteousness before him. I trust you're saved today. For those of us who are saved, we should follow the example of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We should be seeking to walk in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord so that we might have a testimony for the world that is blameless. We ought to seek to be busy serving the Lord so that the Lord might find us faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
We thank you for your servants, Zacharias and Elizabeth. We thank you, Father God, for the testimony that you give of this couple. Lord God, that they were saved, sanctified, and faithfully serving you. And that's why you called them. That's why you used them to be the parents of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the voice crying in the wilderness to declare the coming of the Saviour. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to learn from their example. If there be anybody here today who doesn't know you as their Saviour, may Father God today be the day that they acknowledge that they're sinners before you and trust you as their Saviour today before it's eternally too late. And for those of us who are saved, help us, Father God, have a testimony before the world that is blameless. So nobody can point an accusing finger at us, that our testimony might be all it ought to be, that people might see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And help us to faithfully serve you in accordance with your revealed will in our lives day by day. Bless now as we close, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.